1: Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator, where each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing Rishi Sunak's special relationship with India as he heads off to the G20. We'll also be talking about America's waning support for Ukraine. And finally, we'll be talking about the joys of frozen food. First up, In his cover piece for the magazine, Spectator's political correspondent, James Hill, writes that the Prime Minister's visit to New Delhi for the G20 summit could be a defining moment in the special relationship between Britain and India. James joins me now, along with Shankar Singham, former advisor to the UK Secretary of State for International Trade. James, to start us off, can you start by explaining to listeners what we're likely to see happen on Rishi's upcoming trip to India?
2: Well, there's two things, really. I mean, at the background here is the ongoing talks between uh, the UK and India, which have been going on since January last year about a free trade agreement. But next weekend, uh, there's a two-day summit in New Delhi for the G20. And really, this is uh, India and Modi's chance to showcase the country to the world and how it's changed and it's now a strong, powerful nation. And what will be on the agenda will be discussion around things like security as well as the trade deal as well. And I think this is the kind of key thrust to the piece, Lara, is that looking at how the trade deal is really a part of the kind of Indo-Pacific tilt and that's going to be part of a long-term uh, strategy and not just confined to the Conservatives, but also Labour have been keen to emphasise that they would keep this going. So really, it's a combination of what's going on with the trade discussions and also what's going to be on the G20 agenda next weekend.
1: Shanki you've you've been writing about the UK's policy towards India for some time now. Can, can you start by explaining to listeners how you see the Indo-Pacific tilt working in relation to the UK?
3: Yeah. So I, I think obviously, as you noted, uh, there's been quite a long discussion between the UK and and India on on the free trade agreement. So We should note that uh, many countries have tried to do free trade agreements with it and uh, have all sort of fallen at relatively early hurdles. Uh, Some negotiations have been, you know, are are into their second decade or third decade now. The difference, I think, think between the UK and others is that the UK has very, very focused offensive interests, uh, particularly things like legal services, market access, things like some aspects of financial services, concerns about India's data, localization policies, and so on. And relatively, I wouldn't want to say straightforward, but relatively manageable defensive interests. And obviously the other offensive interests is the Scotch-Whiskey tax and tariff. So you you can see the contours of a deal. And if the UK were to be able to get the deal closed, and I think they are going to have to do that by the end of the year, because India will go into its election cycle after that, and I think the window will close after that. If the UK can do that, that will be a very significant uh, economic and geopolitical event. It will be the first time that a major G7 has got a sort of deep and comprehensive trade deal with with India. Uh, the Australia deal with India, by the way, is a very, very superficial trade deal. The The only country that actually has anything like a comprehensive trade deal with India is is the UAE. But if, if the UK can do that, then they start to bring India much more closely into the sort of CPTPP orbit, if you will, in terms of a deeply liberalizing trade agreement regional platform. And that brings in the sort of Indo-Pacific tilt and realizes something that both the Europeans and the US have been claiming. They they want to see, which is a much more vigorous and strong position. As James noted in his article, one of the fastest growing regions of the world with a very large population that is uh, both growing in terms of GDP per capita and in terms of population and in terms of you know many other many other factors and uh, geopolitical significance.
1: And and what is your assessment of Rishi Sunak's negotiating position? What what are his strengths and his weaknesses?
3: I think the, the the strength is that very focused, uh, you know, offensive agenda and the ability. I mean, what the UK will have to do, though, I mean, the, what the Indians, I think, will want to see from the UK will be something around visas. That's going to be challenging and difficult for the UK. I would expect the Indians also to be concerned about some of the agricultural market access barriers that they've faced with regard to trade into the EU. Some of the sanitary and phytosanitary restrictions that they've faced. But, you know, beyond that, I think for, for India, uh, the significance of having a deal with a major G7 is, is something they want to something they want to pursue. So I think that's in his favor. Clearly, there's a personal dynamic here. And I think James mentioned that in his article as well. I mean, you've got a, the, the Indians, particularly Modi, he said Rishi Sadak is a sort of bridge. India has a, a Minister, essentially, for the diaspora. Very few countries have that kind of approach to citizens who emigrated. So, I think, I think, essentially, the, the the stars are essentially lining up for the UK here. I think, in terms of getting a deal with with India in the time frame available, what's the challenge to him is obviously the time frame that's available. Uh, Modi has lost some important sub federal elections. His position is not perhaps as strong as it might be going into this, and clearly the Congress party has a very different view uh, of trade liberalisation or market competition or what you might call classical liberal economics uh, than the, the the BJP. So that puts a time restriction on this, and and that's going to make it more difficult for him to, to, to get a deal that is a strong, that the UK business community will actually support.
1: James, you, you mentioned in your piece that despite... Rishi's Indian heritage—that you, you get the impression that, that he's not going to be kind of playing the prodigal son. There aren't any plans for Biden-style visits to ancestral haunts. Is that the kind of diplomatic approach that we're, we're going to see him him taking when it comes to India?
2: Yeah, I think that you know, in fairness to Rishi Sunak—you know, born in Southampton General Hospital, uh, lived all his life in the UK. He met his Indian wife uh, in California, and though he has been there and was married in in a in a fairly low-key. Ceremony there, which was a disappointment to the Indian gossip columnists. Um, you know, he not—it's not an area I think he's particularly comfortable kind of talking about in the sense of you know doing the Joe Biden style I'm Irish when actually you're one sixteenth Irish it's really interesting for the piece looking into his background um you know in some ways his story is a kind of microcosm of the wider kind of a lot of the british indian story i think his um his, his grandfather was actually in one of the nearby towns uh, where was the Amritsar massacre in 1919 he then in the 1930s moved to to kenya and i think one of and on, that's on the paternal side on the maternal side his grandmother had to sell her jewellery to come here and bring bring family here in the 1960s and you know so it's all very kind of it's interesting kind of a wider story but in terms of his own Sunak personal connection I think it won't be um, it won't be a huge part of the trip we see next weekend what is perhaps more interesting is um, Aksharta Murthy who of course is his wife and the daughter of one of India's richest men in 2010 David Cameron gave a speech when he went to InfoSays which is Akshata Murthy's father's uh, factory and saying you know if if Bangalore was the, the city which sums up India's awakening, then emphasis is the commercial equivalent. And I think there'll be a lot of attention on her. Um, you know, talking to some people, they say that in the press she's sort of regarded as a kind of equivalent of Kate Middleton, you know, quite sort of secretive and but, but respected, always elegantly turned out, interested in fashion. And so I think it'll be interesting to see what role she plays over there as well as what Rishi Zunek does in the two-day summit next weekend.
1: And Shankar, we know obviously Rishi is focusing on this Indo-Pacific tilt. What do you think are Modi's foreign policy priorities right now?
3: Well, India's in a little bit of a difficult situation because um, clearly you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused a lot of countries that are on the cusp, you know, who've essentially played both sides, as it were. India obviously buys lots of defense equipment from Russia. India does not want to be put in a position where they have to sort of choose you know, which side they're going to be on. Now, clearly, UK foreign policy is very much focused on identifying your core group of very close allies, think countries like Australia, the US, the Five Eyes, there's sort of concentric circles around this of different groups of countries. CPTPP is one group of countries in the Indo-Pacific region. Where India is uh, geopolitically and how reliable an ally it can be geopolitically very much depends on a UK perspective, on them precisely making a choice, at least some level of choice, um, between systems. And um, the Indians, on the other hand, just like many other countries in the world, have resisted making such a choice and are trying to position themselves to be um, friendly to as many parties as they possibly can. We recently had the BRICS summit, Brazil, Russia, India, China. That grouping has been expanded now to include countries like Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, uh, other other countries that, typically, we would be, we would not expect to see in that that kind of that kind of alliance. So there is a bit of a battle for the heartstrings here. I think there is a bit of a battle going on for, you know, what India's future is is going to be, which again is one of the reasons why a trade agreement with the UK, particularly if it is a comprehensive liberalising agreement, that sort of enshrines to some extent. Forces of market competition into the Indian economic structure. That's why I think this agreement could be extremely important. Now, I think you'll always you also want to see some early harvest measures because trade agreements, you know, take a long time to realise their benefits and so on. But you you would want to see some early harvest results from such a negotiation. Improved trade, digital trade corridors, other kinds of things that you can do to facilitate. Um, trade between the countries. You'd want to see some of that, I think. So it's its absolutely, it's probably closer to being a reality than it has ever been, in the sense of having a major G7 country concluding a serious comprehensive deal with India. And it, it comes at a time that is absolutely crucial for the West, you know, in terms of its, its foreign policy objectives.
1: Thank you, James and Shankar. Next, Owen Matthews, The Spectator's Russia correspondent, expresses his concern this week about America's waning support for Ukraine. He says that ultimately it's America and the outcome of next year's presidential election that could decide Ukraine's fate. Owen joins me now alongside Jim Townsend, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for European and NATO policy under the Obama administration. Uh, You start your piece this week by saying that it's been actually a pretty good week for the Ukrainian war effort. Can you explain what's been happening?
0: Well, uh, today's news has been uh, that The Ukrainians have uh, apparently perfected some kind of long-range drone. We've known they've had that capability for a long time, but they've really stepped up their game. Um, There's been attacks on six Russian uh, cities, including Moscow, Pskov, 800 kilometers from the Ukrainian border. An airfield was struck there in Pskov, taking out at least four planes. Those are the reports. Gunfire over over Crimea. And going back over the last uh, week or two, The Ruble crashed again, the Russian space probe um, to the moon crashed also, Um, but there have been various defections, uh, notably that of a Russian pilot that defected along with his helicopter, and most importantly on the ground, or perhaps most importantly on the ground, an important village on the road to Tokmak, which is itself on the road to Melitopol and Crimea, has been taken. So in that sense, actually, it's been a very good week for Ukraine. And perhaps best of all, you know, cherry on the cake for Ukraine is that Evgeny Prigozhin, the leader of Wagner, was killed. In a plane crash, and uh, I think many Ukrainians are seeing that as a sort of you know karmic payback for the things uh, that so for, for the things that Prigozhin did in Bakhmut and, and and previously. So all in all, on the tactical level, things are looking pretty good.
1: But you say that despite all of that, clouds seem to be gathering for Kiev, particularly when it, when you look towards America. Can you take us through that?
0: Unfortunately, indeed, there is a, a but. And the but is um, that however brave and motivated and skillful and imaginative the Ukrainians may be, the bottom line of their war effort lies in the supply of sophisticated Western military technology. And in the entire course of this war, that has been America that has been making the running on that. And there is a problem with America for Ukraine insofar as... As the campaign, the the, we we, uh, lead into the uh, 2024 presidential elections, the military support for Ukraine is becoming a partisan issue that really is fatal for Ukraine. And furthermore, the two leading, in fact three, if we count Ron DeSantis, but we have the leading candidates for the Republican nomination are all extremely, in different ways, skeptical about increasing aid to Ukraine. And also we see a slide in public support for further funding. So uh, a recent poll by CNN, a rather authoritative one, showed that 55% of Americans do not favor supplying more military aid to Ukraine. So all of that is strategically really bad news for Kiev's war effort.
1: And Jim, you're speaking to us today from Washington, D.C. Can you give us a brief overview of the American view right now of of how things are going in Ukraine and also perhaps looking a bit ahead to next year and what what we might see happen?
4: Well, thank you very much, and thank you for the opportunity to be on the show. And I just want to tell Owen I I enjoyed reading his article, and I would recommend it to others. Uh, It's a good snapshot of how things look to a lot of Europeans, certainly, but also to some in the U.S. as well. And I, and so what I'm, I'll do, as as you've asked, uh, I'll I'll give you a bit of a, a view from Washington, which is different from a view from Des Moines or from Poughkeepsie. Uh, but uh, but it's a it's a it's a informed view uh, based on what I'm hearing from others around the country. And the, and so first thing in terms of what's happening on the in the in the war from the U.S. perspective, I think. Uh, Owen laid out very well uh, that there are some things to be happy about in terms of the offensive, in terms of the fighting spirit of Ukraine, in terms of uh, what could be some um, progression on the ground that might breach that second or third line of the uh, Russian defenses. And if that happens, we'll find out how brittle the Russian defenses are in terms of uh, reserve forces, in terms of being able to quickly deal with a breakthrough. And I think the thinking is, and this is in Washington, too, is that if if Ukraine is able to do that, there could be a little bit of a route in that area, in that particular region, if Ukraine is able to move quickly, move armor in there, and really exploit that uh, that breakout. But we're going to have to, that's still some time to the future. I had a lot of hard fighting between now and then, but, but it, it was a good week, and there is progress. And that's something that is hard for some people to really understand. In Washington, among the politicians who number one don't understand military uh, very well and so are expecting something more so there's an expectations problem but but he, but more importantly and again owen has has referred to this because this has become part of our our political debate rather superficially but it's but it's in there the uh, republicans particularly the extremist republicans in the house will not will not see this as an advance but talk about The offensive being bogged down, that the administration is wasting money and time and supporting Ukraine because this isn't going to get anywhere, and and therefore there needs to be negotiations, et cetera, et cetera. But I I want to make the point, though, that, um, and again, it's a handful of Republicans, frankly, that say this. Uh, There's a broader group of Republicans that are kind of watching and waiting, but the people that you hear saying this, they're not saying it because they really feel it as much as they're just causing trouble. This is early in the presidential campaign. This is where the carnival season is. Everyone's being entertained. And so you hear these voices coming out saying things that uh, for this political impact, for a headline to cause trouble, not necessarily because they, they, they believe that. And that impacts polls. And Owen brings up the CNN poll. And frankly, for me, I, it's, it's easy for me to say this, but you can't fight a war by poll. So, you know, you have to keep pressing forward. But in the U.S. particularly, and uh, polls sway back and forth. And that this might be what CNN is seeing. But what happens on the battlefield impacts those polls. And what happens in the political process impacts those polls. So you can see those numbers switch around, too, in a matter of weeks uh, if something happens here or there. But I'm, I'm not so worried about the polls. It's you, you can't dismiss them out of hand. You've got to take them seriously. But you also have to press ahead. So I, I just wanted to make that point. Last thing uh, to just to, to answer your question on the on the u s political side. As I mentioned earlier, we're in the very early stages of this presidential campaign, which seems, frankly, it, the whole all four years of an administration seems to be a campaign. but but we're still in the early stages in terms of uh, candidates, uh, particularly primary candidates. And just to make the point that while in the debate among those Republican candidates a few a uh, week or so ago, Though that debate seemed to uh, highlight a lot of skepticism about Ukraine, the more credible candidates, uh, Republican candidates, Nikki Haley, for one, or Mike Pence or some of the others, they were very strong for Ukraine and made some very good points about that. So it is a debate going on among the Republicans. But I think right now, at least, those more credible candidates are, are strong. DeSantis is getting weaker and weaker course we know about trump but he could end up in jail so so there is a lot to go through before we get a president and we may be very much surprised by who that person is uh it might not be trump uh or uh biden or anyone else we'll have to see what happens in the next uh, year or so
1: No, know and as you as you point out in your piece with the with the real possibility of trump being elected again in november 2024 the obvious strategy for putin is to sit tight in reality, what what would that look like? What would Putin sitting tight mean for over a year and a bit?
0: Well, um, as, as I've said several times, um, both in my recent book and in on this podcast, I mean, uh, Putin cannot hope to win this war, but he can hope not to lose it. He actually, um, it's pretty clear that, you know, with the Ukrainian offensive, not achieving so far any major breakthroughs, there is an enormous weight of just dumb firepower on the Russian side. And it's uh, it's it's artillery, it's minefields, it's very low tech. But they also, by the way, also have high tech. Although, as we saw from a major attack on Kiev last night, um, 28 of 28 cruise missiles were supposedly shot down. But just that sort of First World War grind on the front lines means that actually um, that is going to be, a gigantically difficult and bloody and slow task for the Ukrainians to push through now uh, Mikhail Podalyak, who is actually a uh, an advisor one of the most articulate and uh, intelligent advisors of the uh, Ukrainian president Vladimir Zelensky has predicted that once there is a breakthrough to the borders of Crimea then the entire Russian military and uh, will collapse perhaps I mean that seems to be in in the view of the U.S defense establishment insofar as we can establish it. And I certainly defer to Jim with your experience as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. You will know better than me about this, about the view in Washington. But what we've seen and heard from everything from new reporting in the New York Times and the Washington Post to uh, discord leaks a few months ago is that the Americans don't believe that they will break through, that the Ukrainians will break through. So to answer your question about how this plays into, into American politics, the Bottom line is, the Biden administration, despite their strong support for Ukraine and restated recently when they went back to Congress to top up aid, the support is strong. But from as early as June of last year, the U.S. administration's official position was that they would support Ukraine to give it the strongest possible stance in negotiations. The Americans, the Biden administration is expecting negotiations to happen. So what are the negotiations going to be about? Obviously, it's going to be some permutation of a land for peace deal. The Ukrainians just deny it vehemently, but it's really clear that that's what's going to happen. And that's to say that I don't think there's actually a very big difference between a Trump plan for ending the war and a Biden plan for ending the war, to be honest. Because what it involves is some sort of frozen freezing of the front lines and a type of security guarantee for the Ukrainians, but with a loss of territory, and that's clearly what the uh, what, what, what the, the the American defense establishment regards as an as an inevitability. The only question is how many lives are going to be lost on both sides before we get to that point. That is the rather depressing conclusion that we're getting from from Washington, but from Putin's point of view. There is only one thing that can really change politically in terms of the West between now and a final endgame of the war, and that is the U.S. presidential election. And as Michael McFaul, Obama's ambassador to Moscow, pointed out, you know, explain to me why Putin would make any kind of deal without knowing what the outcome of the election is. As long as there's a chance that somebody who is not so strongly anti-Ukrainian is in the White House, you hang on until that happens.
1: Jim, would you agree with that? Do you think there's no chance that negotiations will take place before the U.S. election?
4: Well, you know, it's a it's a very important point uh, that Owen made. I mean, uh, and then Mike McFall too, in terms of if you're Putin, you're going to hang on uh, until you see if Trump might come back into power, and uh, and and uh, that, that that that, and also the hope that Putin has that the West, even by that time, might be really wobbly on Ukraine, and maybe some of the assistance slows down, and the battlefield becomes a little more balanced in Russia's favor, you know, et cetera. There's a lot of hope, I think, that Putin has. So that puts the emphasis uh, on what's going to happen politically across Europe, but, in, but including in the United States, but also what happens on the battlefield. It could be that we'll be surprised. Uh, there could be, a, it could be a breakout that actually leads to a bigger collapse than anyone thought. That's one thing about this war, if you go back to last year. There were surprises last year, too. But I think what Owen raises about the views of the U.S. defense establishment and the, just the political establishment generally in Washington is important because that's something that we have been discussing here in D.C. too. And just to say that I don't think there is a U.S. defense establishment view. I think there are multiple views in that defense establishment. And, um, and, and so a lot of the defense establishment is, is holding out very much for Ukraine to win. And is frustrated by those that might be in the administration who are not out for a win as much as they're out for negotiations, if you will, what Owen was referring to. There's some in the defense establishment who might be there too. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Archad, every now and then he'll say something that makes you think that's where he is, and then he'll contradict it. There were the leaks that came out a couple of, uh, about a week or so ago, out of uh, defense sources or intel sources. In Washington about, look, they're not going to they're not going to reach the goals they'd laid out for themselves. They're going to be mired down. Yeah, you know, but there was a you know, you know they, I can't remember exactly what they said, but they were casting uh, a very depressing view on the on the uh, on the progress that Ukraine will make. There are a lot of question marks in Washington about who was saying this and why are they saying this? These leaks, as you know, in London, too. I mean, this is not unusual. A lot of leaks uh, are come out to to shape a view, to to do something that, uh, you know, aids the administration or not. And it wasn't clear exactly who was saying this and and, uh, what it was based on. A lot of what they were saying was old news, because as you were reading these articles, you were also reading about some of the things that Owen just laid out about things that were looking good. So. So it's it's a I I, so just to just to wrap up, I I really believe that what is coming out of Washington is confusing, not just folks in Europe, but also in the U.S. too. they contradict. They are leaked by unknown sources. Biden talks about uh, this is up to the Ukrainians. We're we're behind them. What they want to do, we'll support. And then there was uh, last year, you know, let's get them at a good place at the negotiating table. So a lot of the rhetoric last year is still alive this year. But the reasoning behind that rhetoric is no longer what it used to be when it was originally said. But it adds to the confusion about, so what does the U.S. really want? And frankly, it is unclear because of these leaks and because of a lot of things that Owen has laid out. So it is a burden for Ukraine and the, and the, and the leadership there, as well as European allies, to try to feel confident about the, where the U.S. is when these kinds of things are, uh, you know, appear in the press in headlines.
1: Thank you, Owen and Jim. And finally, when was the last time you cleared out your freezer drawer and what did you discover? Isenda Maxton Graham celebrates the joys of freezer food for The Spectator's notes on this week. And she joins me now alongside The Spectator's vintage chef and my co-host on The Spectator's food and drink podcast, Table Talk, Olivia Potts. Isanda, let's start with why you chose to write about freezer food this week.
5: Well, it is 100 years since Clarence Birdseye had the brilliant idea of packing fresh food into into cardboard boxes and freezing it at very high speed, which is the magical thing you need to do for, for ready frozen food. Thus, he ushered in the frozen food era, which I am delighted to say is still going very strong indeed. And you talk a
1: little bit about some of the things you can still find in the frozen aisle. What, what,
5: sort of, what sort of things do you mention in your piece?
1: Well, on the boiling hot
5: day last week, I went into the blissfully freezing cold branch of Iceland in Deal, in Kent, and was dazzled by the stunning photography on the packaging. The food designed to sort of stimulate those salivatory glands: kebabs with <laughs> uh, with with cheese sauce and um, Ferrero Rocher shaped ice creams. Just is all there. Everything is just jazzed up to an nth degree. And, the, the, and people were happily shopping for the week, and I, th- I felt that they'd, they'd actually found the secret of the universe, which was to buy frozen food.
1: Liv, would you agree with that, that the secret of the universe can be found in, in the freezer? I am such a freezer fan. <laughs> I know that when, when you wrote about your son, you were, you were saying
6: that you were slightly put off by um, the early years of, of motherhood, where you sort of had to rely on fish fingers for ages. I'm, I'm slightly before that with my son, so... I'm still thrilled by the freezer as just you know a, a ready-made pantry of things that make my life significantly easier.
1: Well, I have to say I completely agree with that. Liv. Our freezer at the moment is just full of baby food, <laughs> and I didn't quite know how we'd how we'd feed our children without the freezer. Really, Isana, what do you think? Has has frozen food sort of moved on? I feel like nowadays there are quite a few slightly kind of swankier versions of freezer food that you can get what what do you make of all of that
5: well i think that i mean my, 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 many of our mouths are still but actually have a sort of red mark on them still from the frindus crispy pancake we burnt ourselves on in 1976 and i think things have moved on from there i couldn't even find a crispy pancake in iceland even though apparently they still exist in the bird's eye form even though that Findus has ceased to trade in the uk but i wonder what what most of us are keeping in the deep freezer i think it's a good time to have a look in our own deep freezers and see how many chiller cabinet items we have um, which are different of course from things you by and then freeze things that come from chilled, and then the wonderful words on all these items are cook from frozen. So you don't have to go through the terrible procedure of having to keep it in the fridge for 24 hours before you cook it. But I, I don't really have very much chiller cabinet stuff anymore. Exactly as I said, I had a, I had a stomach turning year or two with potatoes smiley faces when my children were going through a particularly fussy phase, and that really put me off. <laughs> <laughs> and Liv what about in your
1: situation? If we were to come to your house and open your freezer, what what would we find? And are there particular items or ingredients that you find useful to keep in the freezer well, the, when you're you cooking. The thing you find before you open my freezer
6: is the most impressive and organized freezer inventory stuck up on my on my fridge freezer with masking tape. But wow. if, you, if you spoke to my husband for maybe 30 seconds, the first thing he'd say to you is, it's not up to date. And as with any inventory, <laughs> the, the moment you, you, you are not on top of it, it's completely pointless. So I have what looks like a really impressive freezer system where I don't fall foul of the, you know, things at the bottom of the chest freezer that you have failed to label and forgotten about. In theory, I am incredibly organised. In practice, currently defrosting in my kitchen is what I'm fairly sure is a pasta sauce for dinner tonight, but I have not labelled it, so I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> um, it could, we could be about to have some kind of soup on pasta, who knows? Or basically. It's, it's,
5: it, it's a three for two item, well, or any three for £10, disaster isn't it? Because you buy two and then you freeze the other one, and then Absolutely two years not. later you find it lingering. And, and you can't eat yeah. it two years later, it's completely disgusting. It looks yeah, so dried can't up. You
1: can not really leave food for too long in the freezer, can no, you? No, it does it. Does it it consume within a strange. month, it just, means yeah. it. Mm. And Liv, do you have any top tips for people kind of approaching freezer foods that, that you've kind of come across over the years? Oh, I think, well, in all seriousness, don't, you know, don't be
6: fooled by my mistakes. Labelling, I think, is really the answer to having a good, a good constructive freezer. But I really like freezing seasonal fruits so that I, I have it throughout the year. You know, if you if you prep it, which some need and some don't, and then pop it in freezer bags, you have pies and crumbles or, you know, jams and compots all the way through. So that, that takes up quite a large proportion of my freezer. The other thing is, is that I think there are so many things that you can prep or make in advance. I don't like cooking last minute, even though I am a cook and, and enjoy it both professionally and personally. I like things to be really squared away, I suppose. So I'm very much of the opinion that there are so many more things that we can Make and freeze in advance than we than we do, um, and I'm hosting Christmas for the first time this year for fourteen, and I will be making quite a large proportion of, of the of the festive food significantly in advance and freezing it ready to go on the day.
5: I noticed that bolognese sauce tastes disgusting when it comes out of the deep freeze. Homemade bolognese sauce delicious when it goes in, revolting mm. when it comes out. So that's gone off the menu. I say I've got three sort
1: of slight top tips from having spent quite a bit of time in my freezer in the last year. One of which is um, frozen lemons. Frozen ch- chopped up lemons in oh, a drink. Yeah. Uh, a loaf of bread actually freezes very well if it's if it's sliced and also um, cookie dough. What's cookie well. dough freezes brilliantly and you can bake it from frozen.
5: That sounds very clever. Bake from frozen. That's what right, we want. Yeah, that's what we yeah. want. To it is. It's not the, sm- the, sniff test. <laughs> <laughs> the sniff
1: test of the fridge. <laughs> well, Yosanda and Liv, thank you very much for joining. And that's it this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up a copy of the magazine. You can read everything we've talked about. I'm Nara Prendergast, and I hope you'll join us again next week when Will Moore will be back with me.